Thanks for tuning in to the IGM podcast. We're so glad you've decided to explore God's word with us. We look forward to connecting with you in email at infointegritygm.com or online at our website, www.integritygm.com. We hope this podcast encourages you to grow in the knowledge of God through His Word. Be blessed. Well, praise the Lord. Blessings to everyone in the name of Yeshua the Messiah. Today we're going to be looking at Amos chapter 5. And we just finished the first four chapters, did some of the background to Amos. And we did that in one setting, four chapters in about an hour, and I encourage you to go back and listen to those chapters. As we look back at those chapters, chapter 1 is the judgment of God against the nations around Israel and Judah. Chapter 2 is God's judgment on Judah and Israel because of their sin. That's just like the nations that surround them. Chapter 3, all the tribes are guilty, all of Israel is guilty. And chapter 4 focuses up in the north upon the women that have made themselves uh, masters, almost like gods, over their husbands, and they are greedy, and they're wanting more and more. Today, we would use the term divas. There's not anything that satisfies them, and they want more power, more riches, and they're very greedy, and, and God's judgment against them, against the northern kingdom. And here in chapter 5, is going to be a call to repentance upon everyone that Amos is prophesying to, even though you see that all the way through these four chapters, a call to repentance. That's always why you bring forth a message of judgment, is to bring people to repentance. In chapter 5, it's going to get very specific of what they need to do. And chapter 5 is centering in on the northern kingdom of Israel as well, because the Assyrians are coming, and Amos is prophesying about this. And remember, he's only 30 years preceding the invasions of the Assyrians and destroying the northern kingdom. So this prophecy is relevant, and he will probably see it himself, or others will see it. This prophecy is going to be very fresh to the Israelites and the Jewish people, which includes the Benjamites, these two kingdoms are going to see the fulfillment of this prophecy. So let's jump into chapter 5. Alan is with me today, and my wife Laura is here, and we're going to go verse by verse through chapter 5. We're not going to try to cover four chapters again like we did last time, only one chapter in this setting, and let's start in verse 1. Hear this word which I take up for you as a dirge, O house of Israel. And when he says, O house of Israel, he is speaking, I believe, to the northern kingdom. Now, what is a dirge? I think of a song that is mournful, a song that is associated with death. And this is what Amos is going to be prophesying about destruction and death that is coming upon the northern kingdom. So, Hear this word, I take up for you as a dirge. It's not going to be pretty. It's not going to be good. It's going to be a mournful song about the death of the northern kingdom. Now, Alan and Laura, jump in at any time. Yeah, I was going to just say my footnotes in the Bible I'm reading says a lament. It's almost like a lamentation. Yes. It reminds you of Jeremiah and his lament over the destruction of the southern kingdom. And this is Amos that is singing a song mournfully about the death of the northern kingdom. 
How would you sing this, Scott, if you were to sing it? You want to do a verse? No, we're going to stick to original <laughs> intent of explaining what God's saying through this prophet, and I don't want to disturb that at all. So I'm going to resist from singing, and I know I don't want you to, to sing. Now let's look at verse 2. She has fallen. She will not rise again, the virgin Israel. Now when we look at this prophecy, some people not knowing historical context say that this prophecy is not true because Israel lives today. No, this is talking about the northern kingdom of Israel, the ten tribes that separated from the two tribes of Judah during the time of Rehoboam and Jeroboam. And so what the prophecy is talking about, this northern kingdom will never rise again. And that's exactly what we see historically. Now, the rest of this verse says, She lies neglected on her land. There is none to raise her up. There is not anyone that's going to come beside her to help her during this invasion that is coming by the Assyrians. So God is saying through Amos, you will fall and you will never rise again. The northern kingdom, there is not going to be anyone to raise her up. The northern kingdom will be destroyed forever. Why do you think? Because the southern kingdom also had great sin, but they had a promise of return. What was the difference? It's a good question because the northern kingdom is not Davidic. The northern kingdom is basically separated in a way that it cannot exist in the future. It is through Jeroboam, who is not from the line of David, and all the promises of God through David is coming through the southern kingdom, through Jerusalem, through the temple that is in the south, and through his kingdom, there would be a kingdom established forever, and we know that is through the Messiah. David would never cease to have a son on the throne. And when we look at that promise, that is coming through the Messiah, and the Messiah is going to come from the tribe of Judah. Remember his description, the lamb and the lion, the lamb of God, Isaiah 53, and the lion from the tribe of Judah, that the Messiah will come from Judah come from the southern kingdom, come from the house of David, and establish God's kingdom through David's lineage forever. So yes, when we get into Jeremiah later on, you're going to see the same sin in the southern kingdom that you have in the northern kingdom, and even worse at times. It's a great question, but it is because of God's redemption that God is going to destroy the southern kingdom take it into exile, protect it, but bring back a remnant so that those promises can be fulfilled. Let's go to verse 3. For thus saith the Lord God, the city which goes forth a thousand strong will have a hundred left, and the one which goes forth a hundred strong will have ten left to the house of Israel. What it is saying, or what it meant, I should say, is that there's going to be this collapse of the northern kingdom. From a thousand to a hundred to ten, it will fall and it will not rise again. And I think this is just a picture of how it's going to fall, that there will be city after city that will be invaded. Even the southern kingdom is going to have 46 cities that's going to be destroyed and invaded by the Assyrians. But here is going to be a progression that takes place. They're not going to be able to stand. No one's going to come to their defense. Verse 4, For thus saith the Lord to the house of Israel, 
seek me that you may live. Now, this is this call to repentance. Even though this prophecy is going forth and it is emphatic of what God is going to do, think about Jonah going to Nineveh, and he preaches that God's judgment is coming. He doesn't even preach a message of repentance, but they start repenting from the the greatest to the least, and God brings about a protection upon that city, and he does not destroy that city. So when we look at a judgment that is emphatic, it does not take away the opportunity of the people to repent. And here, God knowing all things, the prophecy is coming, knowing that they will not repent, that he is saying it will be destroyed and it will never rise again. However, the call to repentance goes out. And this is part of that. Seek me that you may live. And there are people in the north that need to understand in the northern kingdom that if you will seek me, the judgment that is coming, there can be my protection upon you, and God will watch over them, but they must repent. They must seek the Lord and come to the Lord on his terms. Yeah, I was just going to ask you that, Scott, but you cleared it up, saying, seek me and you shall live. That doesn't mean the destruction's not going to happen, because Amos just prophesied that before, but... If they do repent, there could be, you said, a remnant that repented, heard what the prophet was saying, and, you know, somehow got the protection to at least keep their life and whatever that would look like after that invasion. I think so. I think that God knowing all things, and remember that predestination is based upon the foreknowledge of God. That's scriptural. For whom he foreknew, he predestined. That principle is all the way through the Bible. God knows the end of the northern kingdom. And he knows that it's coming to an end. It will never rise again. This is what he's showing to Amos. However, the call to repentance still goes out, and there could be those that repent and come to the Lord. And what God is saying is, seek me that you may live, that this destruction personally does not come upon you. And let's continue with that thought. He tells them, but do not resort to Bethel. Bethel is the house of God. It was one of the major religious centers in the north. Dan and Bethel is what Jeroboam I set up as religious centers to keep the Israelites, the northern kingdom, from going down to Jerusalem and having divided loyalty, and maybe they would give their loyalty to Rehoboam and his kingdom. So he set up Bethel. Well, Bethel was already there and Don, but he put the golden calf in those two places as an image to represent the God of Israel. So don't resort to Bethel. That's pagan. Do not go there. And do not come to Gilgal. Gilgal is where they circumcised their men as they came into the land in order to honor God and to have the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. And it was a religious site, but there were idolatrous carvings at Gilgal. Now look at the next phrase, nor cross over to Beersheba. Beersheba is in the south. It's south of Jerusalem. It's part of the southern kingdom. And there must have been pagan shrines in Beersheba as well that don't cross over to the southern kingdom. He doesn't say go to Jerusalem. Don't cross over to Beersheba, for Gilgal will certainly go into captivity, and Bethel will come to trouble. And those two places in the north, 
trouble is coming, destruction is coming, don't go down to Beersheba. Maybe they had some of the same pagan practices down there, but just fleeing down there, those gods in the south are not going to help you as well. Verse 6 is what they need to do. Seek the Lord that you may live, or he will break forth like a fire, O house of Joseph. Sometimes Israel is referred to as Joseph or Ephraim, O house of Joseph, and it will consume with none to quench it for Bethel. For those who turn justice into wormwood or into bitterness and cast righteousness down to the earth, these individuals, there's not going to be any protection for them at all because it will come. What is it? God's judgment will consume with none to quench it for Bethel. Bethel will be destroyed for those who turn justice into bitterness and cast righteousness down to the earth. The only way that you're going to live is to seek the Lord. Seek the Lord that you may live. This is the message of the prophet to the northern kingdom. Their only answer is repentance and coming back to God, and God can protect them. Now let's go to verse 8. He who made the Pleiades and Orion, this is a group of seven stars that we see mentioned in the book of Job, chapter 9, verse 9, is part of a constellation that is called Tarus. And it's mentioned here as well, just like it is in the book of Job. So he who made the Pleiades and Orion, that is God, and changes deep darkness into morning, who also darkens day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the surface of the Lord. Yahweh, yod heh vav heh the personal name for God. The Lord is his name. They should look to God, seek the Lord that they may live. He is their only protection. He is all-powerful. He created all things. He created this constellation of stars And so you must look to God. Don't worship the stars. That's going to be relevant as we get to the end of this chapter. Worship the creator of the constellation of these stars. Don't look at at the moon and sun and the universe and the things in the heavens and look to them to help you, but look to the creator, not to the creation. I'm just thinking back to the the first four chapters and you know, this was a time of, of wealth, and it seemed like prosperity across the land at the moment, and they're just sort of basking in that and enjoying that. And, yeah, and they're looking to all these other things and thinking, this is why, you know, it's okay to do this. Obviously, God's not upset with us because, look, we're prospering. You know, we're, we're doing it. Everything's fine. We're comfortable. And I think that's a dangerous place to be in in this day and age as well. And, and, and back then, you just get complacent. And you think you live in sin, and things can still go well for you, even though you know it's wrong. And you just, well, maybe God's not mad at me, and this is okay with him, and he doesn't mind if we do X, Y, Z. But here, they're worshiping other gods, other idols, but they're still prospering, so they think it's okay. Um, and it's, it's quite incredible that they, throughout all of the history that they have, you know, with the one true God, they don't see that this is something they're not doing right. It's a great point because people confuse physical prosperity with the favor of God upon them. And with sin comes judgment in time. Sin is fun for a season, but then the judgment comes. 
And so with any society that is living in a hedonistic mindset of getting what I can for today, there is the ability of that society to become very prosperous. And sin can lead to prosperity, but it's not a godly prosperity, and it doesn't last forever, because then there will be the judgment of God that comes, because sin brings about destruction. And so the northern kingdom is very prosperous right now. There's prosperity. The people are thinking everything is fine. And also remember, they are still identifying with Yahweh. Now, in some cultures like Israel, they don't pronounce it Yahweh or Yehovah. It's the consonants Y-H-W-H, and it means the great I Am. That's the personal name for God that was given to Moses that they would understand him. So they were still identifying with him, but going to religious sites like Bethel and Dan and having a visual of him as a golden calf, just like the Israelites developed while Moses was up on the mountain, they were developing a image of God to represent him. And why they chose the, the cow, the calf, I do not know. But we do see the importance of the cow in pagan worship even to this day. And so they're identifying with him, prosperity is coming, so they think everything is okay. They think that they're going in the right path. What God is saying through Amos, seek me that you may live. And if you'll seek me, then going to these places and participating in these things, which is against my word and is against my law, will not be part of your life. And come and find true prosperity. True prosperity is a relationship with God from the heart that produces the character of God that honors God. And whether we have a physical benefit from that or not. Now, in the Old Covenant, there was a physical benefit by keeping God's law. We see that as they come into the land. They go to Mount Aval, and they go to Mount Gerizim, one representing the curses, one representing the blessings. If you will keep the law, then I will bless you. If you do not, I will judge you and I will scatter you among the nations. This is, about, this is what is about to take place with the northern kingdom. God is going to destroy them, and he's going to scatter them, and the northern kingdom will never rise again. But in the meantime, they're living in prosperity. They think everything is okay, peace, safety, security, protection, prosperity, and they don't really understand judgment is right at the door. Let's continue. Verse 10 is very important, and it has a connection to verse 13 as well. They hate him who reproves in the gate, and they abhor him who speaks with integrity. In a pagan culture, in an evil culture, a person who speaks truth is hated and abhorred by the society. The gate represents the place in which decisions are made. You never bring people from outside of the city inside of the gate because you do not want others to come in to spy out what is going on within the city. They stay outside of the gate, and at the gate, the king will come or a representative of the king, and they will sit, and they will make judgments, and the elders will be there, and judgments are made at the gate. So the one who speaks truth 
who reproves in the gate, society hates, the northern kingdom hates, and they abhor him who speaks with integrity. The one that speaks honestly about what is wrong and the sin of the nation is hated and abhorred by the northern kingdom. Therefore, verse 11, because you impose heavy rent on the poor and exact a tribute of grain from them, though you have built houses of well-cut stone, yet you will not live in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, yet you will not drink their wine. For I know your transgressions are many, and your sins are great. You who distress the righteous and accept bribes, and turn aside the poor in the gate. Therefore, at such a time, the prudent person keeps silent, for it is an evil time. The wise individual that wants to do right doesn't have the ability to speak because they are hated, they are abhorred by the society. They're told to be quiet, and the prudent individual is going to keep his mouth shut because what the people are looking for is to continue the evil practices that is making them wealthy, making them prosperous, and they're not willing to give it up. They want their big houses They want their beautiful houses. They want their beautiful vineyards. But God is saying all of that is coming to an end. God's judgment is about to come. Can you speak a little bit about our lack of understanding of this word justice today? Because a lot of people think it's outcome-based. So if you have a rich man and a poor man, that's unjust. Society will always have some more rich than others and some more poor, but it's how you treat each other. So a rich man can be unjust, so can a poor man be unjust in the way they act. That's a very relevant question to what we are dealing with today in Western culture, so I'm glad that you asked it. First statement I would like to make is that true justice has to reflect the character of God. And if you do not know who God is and His character, how can you ever bring about justice? In the northern kingdom, they were not following God, so the gates, the places where decisions were being made, bribes were coming forth. You could get the decision that you wanted by unjust ways. Here, they're giving bribes, and they're taking advantage of people, and they're taking advantage of the poor, and they're lending money at high interest. When they're not able to repay it, they're taking everything that they have. So when we look at social justice, first of all, it has to reflect the character of God. What we're dealing with in the Western culture is what they're calling social justice is exactly the opposite. They're calling for social justice that represents everything opposite of God, and they are calling for Marxism. Marxism is calling for equity, that everyone finishes at the same level all the time, that everyone has the same, everyone's on the same level, and if you're not on the same level, there must be some problem. There must be racism. There must be something going on within society. Well, to have equity, you'll never have equal opportunity. And if you have equal opportunity, you'll never have people finishing on the same level. And Marxism, they take away equal opportunity. You don't have opportunity, but they keep everyone down, and everyone has the same. And we know how much corruption is in those systems. Let's go back to what is going on in this situation. 
rich people are taking advantage of poor people by ways that do not reflect God and His Word. They're stealing. They're charging with high interests. They're taking bribes. They're charging with interest knowing that they're not going to be able to pay it back, and therefore they're taking everything that they have. Just like some people do today illegally, they go and borrow money from the mafia or some source like that at such high interest rates, and when they can't pay it back, they're in a lot of trouble. They lose everything that they have. There's not any protection. To pay a bribe and to get your outcome is completely opposite to the character of God. So it's not about an issue of poor and rich. It's about reflecting who God is. You can be a poor man and do things in the right way, but be rich in the eyes of God. When I say poor, poor physically. We see that in the book of Revelation when we deal with the church of Smyrna. He says, I know your poverty, but you are rich. Because they are not compromising the gospel in that context, and therefore God considers them rich even though physically they are poor. And you can have a rich man that has lots of material, but really in reality, in life, emotionally, spiritually, in every aspect, they are truly poor. What is important for social justice is to honor God, honor His Word, reflect His character, and be a person of honesty, to be a person of integrity. And when you look at the context of Amos 5, what you're seeing is that the honest person is hated. The person of integrity is abhorred. The person that is wise, that wants to do what is right, has to be silent. And so this is a reflection of the injustice of the northern kingdom, because they do not know God. And so God is saying, seek me that you may live. Know who I am so that you can know the right way to live within your own life. And if you do that, you will live. Coming down to verse 14, seek good and not evil that you may live. And thus may the Lord God of hosts be with you just as you have said. Hate evil, love good, and establish justice in the gate. And remember, presently, the person that wants to do that has to be silent. But he is saying, establish justice in the gate. Let there be right decisions that honors God in the gate. Perhaps the Lord God of hosts may be gracious to the remnant of Joseph that God's grace will be upon you. You cannot uh, expect the grace of God to be upon you if you're living in a way that does not honor God. So again, social justice today in the Western culture in our societies is completely opposite of the character of God. It's promoting things that do not reflect His Word or His commandments. And the person that wants to do what is right in our society has to do what? Be silent. I hear that all the time here in America. They're preaching this nonsense about social justice, and it's evil, but I cannot say anything. If I say anything, I'm going to lose my job. If I say anything, people are going to call me all kinds of names and attack me, and and I'm going to be isolated. So you have to use wisdom to know when to speak and when to be quiet, because they hate 
honesty in the gates, and they abhor a person of integrity. Integrity. What is integrity? The one that reflects God in his word. So let's go to verse 16. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God of hosts, the Lord, there is wailing in all the plazas, and in all the streets they say, Alas, alas. They also call the farmer to mourning, and professional mourners to lamentation. And in the vineyards there is wailing, because I will pass through the midst of you, says the Lord. Alas, you who are longing for the day of the Lord. What is the day of the Lord? The day of the Lord is when God makes everything right. It's about his judgment that is coming upon the wicked, and it is about his vindication of those who are living and doing what is right. So you are longing for the day of the Lord. This is how confused they are in their thinking. They don't realize how far away that they have walked away from God. This is a nation that is living in apostasy. You who are longing for the day of the Lord, for what purpose will the day of the Lord be to you? Question mark. It will be darkness and not light. Some of them are probably thinking, we want to see the day of the Lord come and bring judgment upon the wicked and not understanding they are the wicked. It will be darkness and not light, as when a man flees from a lion and a bear meets him, or goes home, leans his hand against the wall, showing uh, it's a picture of being at ease and being at comfort. But what happens? And a snake bites him. Will not the day of the Lord be darkness instead of light, even gloom with no brightness in it? It is a day that is coming that you do not want to see. What Amos is saying, seek the Lord that you may live. Do not do evil, do good. Draw near to God and, and come to God on his terms. It's a real call for me just to check my heart. Because last night I was talking to a friend and we were talking about some of the dark days that we're in now and where we're headed, just the whole world, the direction we're headed. And we were saying, come, Lord Jesus, we want God to come to rescue. But what if that came back on us, that we weren't ready for his coming? So we really do have to check our heart and see that we are righteous from the heart. Yes, and I I would put that in the context that the church, the body of Christ, that's always the cry of the bride, is for the bridegroom to come. The Spirit and the bride say, come. And as we are saying, come, Lord Jesus, that is the cry of our heart. That is a reflection of what's going on with inside of us. I think that this context is a people that are living in a sense of false security thinking that everything is okay, because when you look at verses 21 through 23, they are still going through all the formalities of the law, but breaking the moral law, the character of the law, but keeping the sacrificial laws, keeping the ceremonial laws, keeping the feast, having the sacred assemblies, having all of these things Even the Sabbath, the Sabbath is not mentioned here, but in other places and in other prophets, the Sabbath is going to be mentioned, but they're keeping all of these things, but they're breaking the character of God, the moral laws on an everyday basis. So there's a false sense of security. So you can see them saying, let the day of the Lord come, let the Assyrians be wiped out. And not understanding the Assyrians are the instrument in God's hand to bring judgment against them because they are living in sin. 
and they do not know God, and they are living in apostasy. They should know it, but they don't know it. Yeah, just thinking, too, kind of in modern context, insert sex in the body of Christ where they're supporting things that aren't biblical. They're thinking that people are, that are speaking against that, you know, say homosexuality, for instance, that they want God to come and judge those people and that it's hate and it's coming from a place of they just hate everyone and homophobia, whatever it is. And they actually believe it. And it's not something that I think their heart really believes that what they're doing is right and what they're doing is true. And it seems like the people in Amos's time really kind of thought that, even as backwards as you can see, and, and they're robbing people and no integrity. But somehow, when you're blinded and you go down that path of sin, you just seem to think you're on the right side of it. And and with God, it's black and white. You know, one plus one is two. It's There's no middle ground, and, and right is right and wrong is wrong. And if you look throughout the Bible, you see what it is. But yeah, if you get off, it's almost like you just talk yourself into it where you think the people that are speaking truth are the enemy. And they probably saw Amos as an enemy. You see, you know, they saw Jeremiah as an enemy when he was talking, when he was actually the one speaking the truth. Yes, it's a good example as you put it in our world today. And people that think that they're living a righteous life are actually living completely opposite of what God commands them to do. And so they look at us and hate us and call us all kinds of names, even though we're espousing just basic things within God's Word. And I agree with you. They think that they're on the right side, and they're really pantheistic. They don't know God. They do not have a relationship with God. They don't know the gospel. They don't understand that sin separates us from God, and Jesus came not only to forgive us of sins, but to break us of the bondage of sin, and homosexuality is sin. And we can go on and on of different elements within society to call a man a woman and a woman a man and talk about changing genders and all these things. They would say, we need to uphold this and to support these people, and they think that they're right, but they're actually advocating sin, and they're living in sin, but they're still naming the name of Jesus Christ. So they look at us and call us evil things, and we're looking at them and understanding God's Word, and they're the ones that are rebelling against God. They're the ones that have the majority. They're the ones that control society. Believers that know the truth have to be wise of when to speak and not to speak, because in society you can pay a dear price Because the elders in the gate in America are saying one thing, and a person of integrity, if he speaks out, he's abhorred. A person that speaks truth is hated. And so that's exactly what we're going through today. And Alan, you brought a contemporary example that really brings this alive, that someone that is listening hopefully can understand what Amos is going through. Later on, Jeremiah is going to go through the same thing. Habakkuk and others, and Isaiah is going to go through this. They're preaching all the same message, but not anybody's listening. And Amos is starting this with the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And the northern kingdom is about to be destroyed in 30 years from this prophecy, 30 to 40 years. And he says in chapter 4, I believe it's chapter 4, Israel, prepare to meet your God. It's a time of end that is coming for you. God will bring his judgment, and many of them are going to see it with their own eyes. 
Now, coming back to verse 21, to show you the reality contextually of these people identifying with God with form, not traditions, with form of ceremony, but not understanding his moral character. Look at verse 21. I hate, I reject your festivals. That's the feast, the seven feast. Nor do I delight in your solemn assemblies or sacred assemblies. Even though you offer to me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. And I will not even look at the peace offerings of your fatlings. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not even listen to the sound of your harps. They are singing, they are giving, they are bringing the sacrifices, they are having the sacred assemblies, they are celebrating the feast, they are coming together in all of these ceremonies, yet their heart is far away from God because they're living in sin. Verse 24 is a theme of this book. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. This is what God is looking for, that his moral character is lived within his people. So you can have all the sacrifices that you want. You can give all the money. You can sing all the songs. You can say all the hallelujahs. You can keep the dietary laws, and you can keep all the Sabbath laws. You can do all these things, but if you do not reflect the character of God, God hates these things. And this is what he's saying. What is he looking for for the northern kingdom? What is he looking for in us that name the name of Jesus Christ? What is he looking for within society? Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Praise God. Now, let's look at verses 25 through 27, and we're going to be closing out chapter 5. You think it should end there, and that's the end of it, but verses 25 through 27 is bringing it back to reality of the idol worship within society. A society that practices pantheism, polytheism, idol worship, paganism, will never reflect the character of God. Verse 25. Did you present me with sacrifices and grain offerings in the wilderness for 40 years, O house of Israel? Question mark. And I believe the answer is yes. If you look back historically, yes, they did. What is he talking about earlier? I hate your burnt offerings. Or he says it in this way, even though you offer to me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. Why is he not accepting them in the northern kingdom? Well, it's just like their whole history. Verse 25, did you not present me with sacrifices and grain offerings in the wilderness for 40 years, O house of Israel? I believe it needs a response. Yes, we did. Now look at verse 26. This is this syncretism of pantheism, of blending everything together and incorporating everything. You also carried along Sikut, your king, and Kion, your images, the star of your gods which you made for yourselves. Back in the wilderness, yes, you were sacrificing to me, but you also brought and carried along Sukut. Now, Sukut here is connected to Molech. 
the tabernacle or the tent of Molech, that they brought this image with them. You're a king. He's talking to the northern kingdom. This is your king here. In Kiyun, or in the uh, Subtuagent, Rephaim. And when you go to Acts chapter 7, you see Molech and Ramphon mentioned here. Those are the names described in the Subtuagent, the Greek Old Testament. That was an image to Saturn. So you have Molech and you have Saturn, the worship of the creation, the stars, and the worship of this evil god of the Ammonites and the, that came from Mesopotamia. And you see later on it's going to involve child sacrifice to Molech. And then he says, your images, the star of your gods, which you made for yourselves. Now, some people believe, and we don't know exactly, that what they call the Star of David, which is not a biblical symbol, has its beginning with this star to Saturn that was part of the Israelites when they were traveling in the wilderness, wandering in the wilderness, that went all the way to the time of the division of the two kingdoms. In the northern kingdom, they kept this star, and this star is still being used today. The Star of David is not a Star of David. It's not the Shield of David. It's a pagan symbol that has always been a pagan symbol anywhere within the world. But it got incorporated within the house of Israel. Where it comes from, we don't know exactly. The modern-day star had its roots in Kabbalah in the Jews within Prague, And they used that, and it was also a symbol of the Masons as well. It has pagan roots. But here we see a star of your gods going all the way back to this time of Amos, and he's talking about a time that they were wandering in the wilderness. Now let's go to verse 27, the last verse. And this is the reality for the northern kingdom, and this is the reality of any people that is rebelling against God, even though they identify with him with form and with their ceremonies. So let's look at verse 27. Therefore, I will make you to go into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. Their only opportunity is repentance. Their only opportunity to be protected is to come back to God. They have to see beyond their temporary setting of the prosperity that's in their land and understand because of their lack of social justice and what that means, reflecting who God is, judgment is right at the door, and they're going to go into exile beyond Damascus by the Assyrians And the sad reality is they're never going to exist as a nation again, talking about the northern kingdom. The ten tribes are not going to come together as a kingdom in opposition to Judah. They will cease to exist. They will never come back. They are finished forever because they're not going to repent. But for those that would listen to the prophet, if they would seek the Lord, they would live God will protect them. God will show grace upon them if they will seek the Lord. What a powerful message for us today is to keep our eyes on God, honor Him, truly reflect His character, 
and do not have a false sense of security just because we're going through the ceremonies and the form that everything is okay. God's judgment will come against us as well. And so let's check our hearts. Let God search our hearts and let us have a an attitude, God, whatever you want to do within our lives, God, let it be done and let us truly reflect your word. Last point, I, I just saw this at the end, is that, you know, here he's talking about idol worship and serving these other gods, and that's pretty clear to us today. You know, you deal with that in India, but in the West, that's pretty something clear you don't do. But this is in the same chapter where he's talking about justice to the poor and taking advantage of the poor and the needy. And I think we as Christians need to be careful who we align ourselves with. Are the people we're, you know, with taking advantage of the poor? You see this, some people that claim to be body members of the body of Christ, pastors and preachers and, and certain churches taking advantage of the poor. But this is on par and the exact same level as idol worship. And, and God is calling out these two things almost in an equal way. Yes, I would say it in this way. We don't have the traditional form of idol worship today. And idol worship is very specific. You don't take any image to represent God, and you don't bow down, and you don't worship it. That's traditional idol worship. That type of idol worship will always bring about social injustice. It will always bring about immorality. It will always produce a society of sin. We don't have traditional idol worship here in America or in Western societies. We do have the influence of a lot of Eastern religions religions and philosophies, but we don't have traditional idol worship. But remember the words of Jesus, where your treasure is, there your heart is also. And so how do we understand where the heart is? Well, what is the focus of our lives? And even within churches and within denominations, sometimes the focus is money. One of the major subjects that Jesus dealt with with the Jewish people that had come out of traditional idol worship at the time of Jesus, they did not have traditional idol worship, is that you cannot serve God and money at the same time. And so if my pursuit is money, then yes, I'm going to take advantage of the poor. I'm going to develop a theology to get more and more out of them as I get richer and richer. And we have been guilty of that in the prosperity gospel here in the West. And we have seen ministers live in million-dollar homes and still trying to get more and more money out of people that are striving to just get on their feet. And they develop a theology in order to justify that. So it may not be traditional idol worship, but where your treasure is, there your heart is also. And we really have to check what is the focus of our lives. And our focus needs to be upon God and his Messiah. Fix your eyes upon Yeshua, the author and the perfecter of faith. Let's close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you, God, for this time together. Thank you, God, that we belong to you, not just from the practices of ceremonies, but, God, from the heart. Lord, search our hearts, O God. Lead us in the everlasting way. If there are any anxious thoughts within us, Lord, take that away. Let us take security and refuge in you. And God, change us from the inside out. And we thank you, God, for the forgiveness, the everlasting life that comes in Jesus' name, our Lord and Savior. Thank you that we are forgiven in his name. Cleanse us, hold us, God, keep us, God, 
right where we need to be to honor you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'd like to learn more about IGM or have any questions about this podcast, feel free to reach out to us at info at integritygm.com and connect with us on Instagram at integrity underscore global and Facebook at Integrity Global Missions. If you like our podcast, please share it and leave a review. Thank you for listening. Have a blessed day.